Good morning. It's truly a pleasure and a joy to be together this morning to uh, spend time in praise to God, our Father, and remember His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, We see lots of visitors here this morning. We thank you for being here. Hope that you are uplifted and encouraged by our topic today and by our worship service. So I'm continuing through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've come to Matthew chapter 6. And as Jesus continues his thoughts here in his sermon, he's going to, call, going to call into question our motives behind our service to God and our motives for wanting to be a part of the kingdom. You see, Jesus has called his disciples to live a pretty radical life. And it's given that others will notice that. The things that we're called to do, the, the actions that Jesus describes for his followers go against the grain a little bit. And so we might be noticed for that. And it presents us an opportunity to, one, either use that to puff ourselves up, to give glory to ourselves, or to give that glory back to God. And so I've titled the topic this morning, For Whose Glory? For Whose Glory Are We Serving God? For Whose Glory Are We Following Jesus in His Kingdom? And so Jesus here, we we talk about applying things that we learn Uh, that we learn in the worship service, and Jesus is going to give us three things in particular that we can immediately apply as we leave this place today. And He expects us to use these things to be a private thing between us and our Father, our God in heaven, that will bring us into a deeper relationship that promotes full submission in our lives, full full submission to the Father. So a quick review for chapter 5. Jesus is giving this sermon And it's a sermon about the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus proclaimed the gospel, this was the message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. This was the kingdom that was foretold in the law and the the prophets. And it was this kingdom that would be established forever. And that the Messiah would bring usher in this kingdom, that it would go out and fill the whole earth, and that he would lead this kingdom. It's a kingdom that is focused on spiritual instead of physical. And so Jesus is defying expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to do. And he's giving us markers of the kingdom of heaven, and he's showing us what the kingdom of heaven looks like in people's lives, in people's lives, the the people who make up the kingdom. So he begins by talking about the Beatitudes, these pronouncements of blessing, and he shows us who's really blessed in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not who you would expect. It's people who need a Savior, people who are hurting. It's good news to those who are downtrodden. And he tells us that those who are truly blessed are those who live a life and a life of meaning founded in Jesus Christ, that we get our value structure from the kingdom. And so by living out the Beatitudes, we become salt and we become the light to the earth and we help spread the kingdom. In part two of chapter five, we see that Jesus begins to focus on the law and he shows what it means for him to fulfill the law and shows uh, what it means for us to fulfill the law. And so he gives us commandments from the old law and he shows us the wisdom behind it. And he shows us that those in the kingdom will follow Jesus with their hearts. They will purify their hearts. And we will obey not out of compulsion, but out of a desire to follow God and out of a desire to be like Jesus Christ. And so our hearts have to be changed and renovated. And so now we've come to chapter 6, and we've seen a lot of thou shalt nots, a lot of commandments in the negative form. And so he's going to turn that around and give us some commandments in the positive form, things that we should do. We'll call these Christian disciplines, if you will. 
It's not just that we need to avoid heart sins, but we need to practice heart-based religion. And so Jesus is going to give us these three things that we should be doing regularly as a part of His kingdom. And so He sets all three of these up similar. He first gives us a warning of doing these things for our own good. He tells us what that practice is. Those three things are going to be giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And then He's going to give us His example an admonition of how we should properly do those things. And so we see that these are important practices that we need in order to align our hearts with the value set of the kingdom. That instead of serving our selfish tendencies, we make sure that we're serving God and doing these things for His glory. So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he starts out with this warning. He says, Take heed, take heed that you do not do You do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So if we back up and think about chapter 5, Jesus has called us to live by the Beatitudes. He's told us we need to be meek. We need to be peacemakers, merciful. He tells us to go the extra mile. And as He calls us to do these things, He immediately sniffs out our intentions. And... The temptation in living this new life, living a more righteous life, is that it could lead us to do it for the wrong reasons. People oftentimes see the gospel and see the church as a way to advance themselves, to elevate themselves. And then if we look at chapter 5, we see things like this. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 16, it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And verse 48 says, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So how do these things match up? I feel like there's maybe just a little bit of tension here as we go into chapter 6. But what's the difference here? The question becomes, for whose glory are we doing our good works? For whose glory are we doing Are we following Jesus Christ? So he talks about those who do them for the wrong reasons. In verse 2, he says, Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Verse 5, For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. And verse 16, When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be men to be fasting. Appear to men to be fasting. So giving the impression that they're doing some great righteous things. And so he addresses our motivations. And addresses the motivations and the temptation that I may do these things in order to be seen by other people. And we see that the intentions are quite different. In Matthew 5, verse 16, he says, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Whereas here, they want to be seen by men. People use the kingdom to advance themselves in a way to gain fame and even fortune, notoriety. And this was the Pharisees' game. But Jesus is calling us to be something different. When He tells us that your righteousness must exceed that, of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's not telling us to play their game and be better at it. He's telling us to play a different game. He's calling us to be different than them. But as we think about the praise of men, we really like to have other people see our good side, right? We often put up a front. 
And it's our nature to want to show things off. I'm reminded of anytime you see large charitable donations, what do they usually do? They get this big six-foot-long check. It's there in big, bold letters to tell everybody how much money they gave. Meanwhile, it took $500 to print off that check. That actually means it's just a, it's a show. It's a sign. And I understand some of that is to encourage more giving, but the encouragement for us is to not let others see those things. Not to show that off. If we think about charities, many of them are just professionally run organizations that end up profiting the people who run them quite a bit. And they put on this show and they give the appearance that they're doing a lot of good. Meanwhile, 50 cents on the dollar or less actually goes to the cause that they're promoting because they've got all this, everything in the back to run. They've got people to pay who are part of the organization. And so the temptation that we have is to put on a front to show others that we ourselves are great. I'm reminded of uh, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. Simon wanted to make himself great. He was a sorcerer, and as Philip came into town, he was convinced by the gospel and converted. But when he saw the gifts of the Holy Spirit, he saw that as an opportunity for himself. And Peter's rebuke to him as he offered to buy that for money is very sharp. He says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. See, when we do things for ourselves and we use the kingdom as a way to prop ourselves up, this is our true motivation. It's like drinking a poison. It'll poison the gospel. It'll poison your influence on other people. And we see that Simon's motivations were not to help the people around him, but it was to make himself better. And so the intentions of his heart are wrong. The temptation oftentimes that we fight is to put on an act or a performance. And this is the exact metaphor that Jesus uses when he calls these people hypocrites. Verse 2, he says, sound no trumpet as the hypocrites do. Verse 5, you must not be like the hypocrites. And verse 16, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. You know who hypocrites were? It's a Greek word that actually means actor. It's literally to describe somebody who is under an assumed character, somebody that they are truly not. A stage player. And we draw the same comparison whenever we see somebody that we know is fake. They've got like a smell about them or an intention that you can, you can see in them. We say it's all an act. They're doing it all for show. And it's really interesting that this was, these were connected the whole time, the word hypocrite. And so Jesus is telling us, beware of putting on the mask and playing the part. It's a huge pressure for us to feel like we need to look good in front of other people. And we want to make sure everybody sees us at our best. And I don't think it's all the time totally intentional, but we purposely don't want to be vulnerable with each other. And I think Jesus is addressing more of the pride that comes with this, but there can be a fear of being looked down upon. And I'll make a quick comment that for us and our relationship in the church, having that type of attitude will inhibit growth. Us not sharing our problems, us doing things for show, it stops us from actually addressing real issues, about talking to each other about what problems we face. 
But Jesus here is addressing the pride that the hypocrites had. And if you play that game, it's a pretty disappointing end to that. He says, in all three occasions, he says, they have received their reward. And in verse 1, we'll go back to it. It says, you have no reward of your Father in heaven if you do these things. So the reward they have is not one from God. It's not one from heaven. The only reward for putting on the act is the applause applause at the end of the performance, at the end of the show. There may be fame, there may be money, there may be praise of men, but when it's all over, that's all you've got. And it would be a sad ending to your life to spend your time trying to impress other people and lose your soul at the end of it. Jesus tells a story of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus was a poor man who sat at this rich man's gate every day, and he was a beggar. And Simon was in, uh, excuse me, Lazarus was in such a bad state that the dogs licked his wounds. And this rich man passed by him every single day as he was going out and chasing this world's goods, as he was trying to gain fortune. He passed by Lazarus every day, never once paying attention to him. As he finds himself in torment, he's talking to Abraham in Luke chapter 16, verse 25, and it says, But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. See, the rich man got exactly what he was chasing, right? He got all the good things that the life, this life has to offer. But that was his only reward. And now he found himself in a place of torment where Lazarus had the better reward. He had the reward that was from his Father in heaven. And so Jesus offers us this same hope, that your Father who sees in secret will reward you with a heavenly reward. And so our labor is not for the approval of men, but it's for the approval of God. And so we've said it before, we reconcile the tension here by showing that you let your light shine so that it is a reflection of God's glory, not to puff yourself up. The answer lies in our motivations. That means that as we enter into some of these things and the things that Jesus is going to talk about here is that we do those things discreetly. That they are a personal thing between us and our Father in heaven. That they help strengthen our relationship with God and draw us into a closer relationship with Him. And so Jesus expects us to do these things. Righteous giving, prayer, and fasting. And we're to approach them with reverence, with an intent to bring God the glory in these things. And there's a time that all these things can be done publicly, can be done as part of a group, maybe as a part of our congregation. But Jesus calls us into this personal relationship, draws us to, uh, asks us to draw close to God. And so we'll look at these disciplines and we'll look at the admonition that Jesus has for each. And as we look at them, we'll see it covers all aspects of our lives. And so it's not uh, just good to not do what is wrong, but we must do what is right. And these are part of heart-based religion. So we'll first look at giving. Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be seen in secret. 
And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. In the King James Version, this is called alms deeds. We sometimes call it benevolence. And it's giving to somebody who has need, somebody uh, who has a need that uh, should be met. And it's a compassion that motivates us to action to help those that need it. In Jesus' time, there was no shortage of poor people. Poverty was much more common, and many people were barely getting by and just struggling to get by. They had to work every day to make sure they had what they needed. And Jesus calls us to pay special attention to those who are less fortunate, to those who are poor, sick, or unable to work. God, in fact, has always been mindful of the poor, and it's because of this that we should follow His example. This is something that was held in high regard in the Scriptures, and especially for those who are the group of faith. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, it says, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates of your land which the Lord your God is given, giving to you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you should open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. And so in the Old Testament, God had several provisions put in place to help those who were in need. And so part of giving was, or part of this duty was giving to your brother who needed help. And now I think there's some prudence required in giving, but God makes it clear that we're to look out for one another. The possessions that we have in this life are not ours, but they ultimately belong to God, and we're to be good stewards of them. And if we look in the book of Acts, the early church was taking a radical stance on this, making sure that there was nobody in the church who had any need or any want. They were selling possessions, just making sure that everybody had what they needed. Additionally, in the old law, we see that there were commandments to leave the edges of your field unharvested, and those were to be left for foreigners, for orphans, and for widows, as well as part of the vineyards. And so this provided uh, those who were poor an opportunity to go and work for their food. Beyond that, at the end of every seven years, all debts were forgiven and all slaves could be returned and freed. And so it's expected of us to have a mind for the needy, specifically for those in the church. 1 John three seventeen. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If we're to have the love of God, we have got to be able to give liberally of our finances of our estate. And maybe this is a little lost on us today, and maybe the needy aren't as obvious or we don't see them as much. I mean, in, in the country that we live in, there's tremendous opportunity. And as I think about giving, you know, the way I've thought about it maybe in the past is I give to the church and I give to specific works, and then they'll take care of the rest. But is that what Jesus says? No, he says, when you give, Jesus expects us to see a need and to fill it. If we totally rely on the church to take care of that, it's too central. He requires us as individuals to see a need and to fill it, to do our part. And so this is part of our relationship with God as He has a mind for the poor. So if it's within your power to do good for somebody, we ought to do it. We ought to have 
the same heart as God and the same love for God. And if we see those in need, it may be an opportunity for us to bring others to Christ. I think sometimes we separate benevolence and the gospel. But I believe that benevolence is part of the gospel. If we look at what Jesus did, He used His miracles, He used His good deeds to be uh, showing other people the kingdom. And that was part of His ministry. When we give, we're reminded that our possessions are not our own. But it is a blessing, it's a gift that has been freely given to us. And as I think about the Sabbath day rest, and part of its purpose was to have the Israelites stop for a full day to rest and to remember that they relied on God. You see, that was a whole day that they could work, they could get ahead, they could provide for their family, but God asked them to stop and to trust in Him and trust that He will provide. And so there's more things, uh, more important things than our money. As we think about daily having the things that we need, as Jesus will call us, And his prayer that he gives later is to remember that give us the things that we need for today and anything extra is a gift. And it's something that can be shared with others. One thing I forgot to mention is when Jesus says, talks about all three of these things, he uses the word when. When you pray, when you fast, when you give. These are things that Jesus expects us to do. And so, Next, we'll talk about fasting. Just as we learn to not let our finances be our master in this life, we have to learn that our body and our desires should not be our master in this life. And I think that's where fasting comes in. We're going to go to fasting next and go a little bit out of order so that we can uh, conclude with the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer that He gives us here in chapter 6. So chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Fasting is another thing that we see is, is common in the Scriptures and that the Israelites practice on a regular basis. And this is an expectation for Jesus and his disciples. Fasting, in its simplest form, is restraining yourself from food, going for a period of time without eating, or going for a period of time without eating certain types of food. I think we can apply fasting to other types of indulgences, refraining from a specific thing for a period of time. But we see many examples of this in the Bible. And from what I can find, there's not a specific commandment, you shall fast, or you shall fast at this time. But it's all over the Bible. And it's something that it's clear that it's implied and it's an example that's set for us. There are many different reasons to fast. We see that the people of Nineveh fasted as a part of their repentance as Jonah brought them the message from God. In the book of Ezra, he fasted because of his mourning. As Paul uh, was on the road to Damascus, he saw Jesus Christ. He spent the next three days fasting and in prayer. In the book of Esther, the Jews fasted for deliverance. Jehoshaphat, the king, called a fast in the land of Israel to restore people's focus on God. We see that fasting was a thing that uh, churches would do in ordaining church leadership. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah each fasted for 40 days. Jesus 
as part of his testing and temptation in the wilderness. And Moses, as he was up on the mountain, and Elijah in their communion with God. And so there's many examples given for fasting. Jesus was asked why his disciples didn't fast while he was with them. And Jesus gives them this explanation in Luke chapter 5, verse 35. It says, while the bridegroom is here, they have no need to fast. But verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. We're in the period of time where we are waiting for the bridegroom to return. So now is the time to fast, waiting for his return. If we think of fasting, it's the ultimate form of self-denial and mortification of the flesh. It's a way to uh, bring our desires in and our focus in on God. It's a trainer and teacher to not be held by our bodily desires. And so I fasted in preparation for this, and I'm not saying this to, to boast to you, but I'll talk about a few things that maybe you can expect when you fast. You may find that you want to tell other people you're fasting. You want other people to share in your suffering, maybe. You may feel inclined to complain about how hungry you are. It will probably be unpleasant and uncomfortable. But it gives you a time to meditate on how it feels to desire food and to not partake in that food, especially if you've got little kids around that have to be fed. And the thing that I can most relate it to is times of my most difficult temptations, where my body wants something, my desires are for something else, and I have to focus on restraining myself from that. And so it gives you a time to reflect on your need for God, to give God thanks for that time, and it gives you a reason to thank God for your next meal. And uh, that meal is really easy to overeat, by the way, and that kind of destroys the purpose of fasting a little bit. But again, this is an expectation that Jesus has for us. And so if you have not fasted before, I encourage you to start doing that. And start doing that as part of your relationship with God as a way to draw yourself in closer to Him and to remember your reliance on Him. Here's a few things that may help you to get started. The first thing I want to say is if you have medical complications that would keep you from fasting, I would not encourage you to fast. But if you have no underlying health conditions, it's not going to hurt you to go a day without food or even two, three, or four days without food. You can start small. A lot of people do intermittent fasting for health reasons, and that's going 16 hours without food, basically skipping breakfast is what a lot of people do. But I encourage you to work your way up to a full day without food and give yourself to prayer, to meditation, and to reflection on the things that you're feeling. And think of ways that you're learning and benefiting from that. And again, remember that you are doing this as part of trust and reliance on God. Trust that He will provide for you when the time comes. And let Him and your, His Word be your food for the day. And I know it's something that is difficult, but this is something that Jesus asks us to do. And it's a way that we self-discipline ourselves and train ourselves to deny our body the things that it wants, to bring our body under full control. Paul talks about disciplining his body so that he would not be a castaway. He brings it into subjection, and we ought to do the same thing. And now we'll talk about prayer. Prayer is where we bring our spirit to serve God 
and we come into a closer relationship with God. And I believe that this is probably the most important of the three that helps align everything else with God and His will. And so that so Jesus teaches us that praying and praying often, even multiple times a day, helps align us and our desires with God. So chapter 6, uh, verses 6 through 8, he says, but, when, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. So in contrast with the public notoriety that the hypocrites seek, Jesus encourages us to have a personal and private prayer life, a personal and private dialogue with God as we enter into prayer. So what's one of the markers of having a close relationship with someone? Well, it's a a partnership having communion with that person, and it's communication. For those of you who are married, and if you're like me and Avery, you enjoy date nights out where you get a little bit of time away from the kids. And that's a time where you can focus in on your relationship, spend time without distractions, and it helps uh, strengthen your relationship. How can we expect to have a deep, meaningful relationship with God if we never spend time alone in prayer with Him? Jesus found that he himself needed time alone to talk with God, to pray to God. And we see that Jesus would often retreat by himself and spend all night in prayer. And if Jesus needs prayer, we need prayer as well. We need to pray often. And so Jesus, here in chapter 6, he has this model prayer that he would pray. We know it by the Lord's Prayer. And it's amazing to think about that this was Jesus' prayer, one that he prayed And He gives this to us to be an example to us in how we ought to pray. He prayed this on multiple occasions, but it was not a vain repetition. He totally meant it when He prayed it. And so it's uh, a prayer that allows us to, to see His example. It's not meaningless and cold as maybe perhaps this prayer has become for you or for me. But it's a prayer that had a great meaning, and it's one that calls us in to align ourselves with God. And as we think about prayer, prayer needs to be like an active conversation. We can all tell when somebody, we're talking to somebody and they're just phoning it in, right? Like, yeah, they're not looking at you. They're just like, yeah, oh man, that's rough. Yeah, we, we know when people aren't paying attention to us. And how does that reflect on us if we approach God in that same way. I find myself just, if I'm not in it, I default to those vain repetitions, the things that I say all the time that may not necessarily have any meaning when I'm saying them without actually thinking about. Thank you for the many blessings you give us. What blessings? Am I just saying that to pass the time to get to the end of the prayer? And so Jesus gives us perfect model prayer, and it's His expectation that we would pray this prayer as well. So we're going to talk about this very briefly as we finish up this morning, and if you want a more in-depth study of this prayer, I'll encourage you to go back on our podcast back to August of last year. Trevor gave an excellent 
sermon on this prayer and covered it in more detail. But a few things that I want to point out about it is this follows a particular pattern that we see in other places in the Scripture. When Jesus told His disciples or, or answered the question of what's the greatest commandment in the kingdom or the greatest commandment in the old law, He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. And the second is like unto it, you should love your neighbor as yourself. So we see a similar pattern here in this prayer, that we direct ourselves and align ourselves with God, but then it focuses on how we treat our neighbor. The Ten Commandments follow this pattern as well. It's about our relationship with God first, and then our relationship with our neighbor. And so I think this helps us to prioritize and helps us as, as we pray, not to be totally self-centered and self-focused, but we're focused on what God wants for our lives. We're focused on being there for our neighbor. A lot of times our prayers kind of sound like, please, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Me, 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 me. But Jesus invites us into God's will. And so it's put together in this poem form. It's easy for us to remember, and I encourage you to include this in your prayers, to pray Scripture. So first thing he says, he says, In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven. Jesus most often referred to God as his Father. And it exemplifies the relationship that he's showing us that we ought to have with God. God is a loving and merciful Father, one who cares for us, one who knows what we need better than we do. He knows before we ask, but He's calling us in to a relationship with Him. And Jesus really drove home this, this point in that we can confide in our Father, we can seek shelter, and we can find forgiveness in Him. But He is a strong Father who will correct us when we're wrong. But He'll accept us with open arms when we return to Him. But as a righteous God, He will punish the wicked and give a just reward. And so this relationship is, is kept in the proper context when He says, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to be set apart, to keep holy. It keeps our relationship with God in the right place. He's to be treated with respect. His name is to be treated with respect. We have to keep that in mind as we approach Him in prayer. We realize that our prayer is going up before God in His holy throne room up in heaven. And so our actions ought to proclaim, proclaim the holiness of God and show others the glory of His name. Our actions should not be using God to puff ourselves up, but it should be to give God the glory. We're to bring His blessings and His goodness here on earth. And praying uh, to God our Father and setting apart His name as holy is bringing our actions and our life in alignment with Him. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we think about this section, we'll ask, has the kingdom of God come? The answer is yes. Jesus brought that kingdom here on earth. But has the kingdom come for everyone? The answer to that is no. There's still people that have yet to accept Jesus Christ or have yet to know Him. Has the kingdom come in your life? You say, yes, I've been born again. I'm a disciple of Christ. But has the kingdom fully come in your life to where it fully takes over your intentions, your actions, and your goals? No. So as we pray this, it's calling us to uh, asking God to bring His kingdom more fully here on earth. 
It's inviting God and His goodness and His perfect will in heaven to continue to invade this space, this broken world. And we're praying for that blessing to continue to come and to continue to fill the world. And we talked about that in the Beatitudes and that we are the blessing. We are part of the people who can be a part of spreading His kingdom here on earth. Next, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Make a quick note here that Jesus didn't say me, my, I, but he said our, us. And so there's a communal aspect to this. It's not just about me, it's about me and my neighbor. And he says, give us this day our daily bread. This calls us to remember the manna in the wilderness. The Israelites were forced to daily rely on God for their food. Every single day the manna would come, but it didn't keep longer than a day. It would go bad. And so daily they had to be reminded that they were going to rely on God. And on the sixth day, they were called to take a double portion so they wouldn't go out and gather on the seventh day. And they, again, had to trust in God. And so we need to take the same mentality. As we think about our situation, we've been set free from sin, but we're here in this wilderness and between this life and the next. And the promised land is set before us. And we ask God only for the things that we need for today. And then if we have anything extra, well, that's a gift that can be shared. That's part of our giving. It's something that uh, gives us, uh, helps us have the mentality of giving, as we discussed earlier. And then he says this, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we see this transition here in this uh, section from the focus on God and His will, aligning ourselves with Him, and aligning our requests with Him to focusing on our neighbor. And now we focus on our neighbor and forgiving other people their debts to us or their trespasses. And we ask God to forgive us our sins. And, and it's important that in order for us to do that, we have to forgive others. The merciful will be shown mercy. He doubles down on this and really drives the point home at the end of the prayer when he says this in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so to take on the character of God to live a part of His kingdom is we take a radical stance on forgiveness. And it's because we know that much has been forgiven of us. As Jesus in chapter 5 talked about the feelings of resentment, the feelings of wanting to get even, all of that ends at the cross because Jesus paid the debt. And so for us, we ought to have an attitude of forgiveness. And this sermon has a steady pulse of a proper relationship with others, one that is forgiving, one that looks out for the best of others. He talks about being merciful, turning the other cheek, praying for your enemies, Forgiving people who sin against you. Treating others the way you want to be treated. And so, that doesn't mean we ignore wrongs. Jesus in His teaching actually tells us that we ought to address those things. But in the kingdom, we seek for the best for our neighbor. And that includes forgiving people when they wrong us. And when we see people that are truly looking out for one another, and we see a congregation that is doing that, we see a group that can grow and we get a taste of heaven here on earth when we're truly looking out for each other, providing for one another, forgiving each other of our trespasses. 
And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you choose to live in the kingdom, there's going to be times that we are tempted and times where we are put into a test that tests our allegiance to God. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 13. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. This is great because it's a rephrasing of what Jesus said in His prayer. Tests are a part of life, and when we're living in the kingdom, living here on earth where there's powers of darkness that will oppose us, we're going to be tempted. Things are going to be put in our way. But when the temptation comes, remember that God is with us. Jesus himself was led in temptation, and he even prayed on multiple occasions that he didn't want to go through with that. He didn't want to be tempted, didn't want to be led into the test. And, but still, what did he do? He fully surrendered himself to God and his will. He fully surrendered himself and took on the suffering that was set before him in the cross. And so when we go through trials, we share in the sufferings of Christ. And what a comfort that is for us. Knowing that there's glory set before us and that there's strength in praying for deliverance. And if we pray this, and we pray when we're tempted, we'll find that we can resist that temptation. We can be delivered from that trial. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Everything is God's. All the glory, all the power, all the things we see around us, all our possessions, they belong to God. And God today calls you into a personal, close relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. But it requires action on your part. And so... I want to ask you this morning, do you know God the Father? Whenever we turn these things around and we do these things for our own glory, we end up taking God's name in vain. We prop ourselves up and puff ourselves up with His goodness. But that reward is fleeting, and it's a small speck when considering eternity. And so God promises us something bigger in heaven. And God reassures us that if we trust in Him, we truly know Him, that He'll raise us in the last day, to be a part of that everlasting kingdom. What is the reward for those who do this for themselves? Chapter 7, verse 23, he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, do you want to know Jesus this morning? Do you want to know God better? Do you want to fully trust in Him? He calls you into a closer relationship with Him through giving, through prayer, and through fasting. Jesus calls us to have discipline in all these things. And so let us submit our full lives, our finances, our spirit, and our body to God for His glory and His purpose. And for those who truly submit to Him, who are truly part of the kingdom, He says this, Matthew 5, verse 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So do you know the Father this morning? For whose glory are you living the life that Jesus has set before you. Maybe if you feel like you need help in the areas that we've talked about, if you need to renew your relationship with God, we want to help you with that this morning. Whether that means you come forward here in a moment or you contact a brother or sister after the service, we want you to come into a closer relationship with the Father today. 
And if you want to start your relationship with God and with Jesus Christ through baptism, we ask that you come while we stand and sing.